I believe some folks are coming back to go to school. <clears throat> Does it start tomorrow for some folks? And anyways, whatever's brought you back from the summer to be here today, we're glad that you're here. And if you're visiting with us, we're doubly glad that you're here and hope that you'll be back to worship with us on many, many future occasions. Several announcements to call to your attention. Um, mark your calendar for next Sunday, the 21st, 5.30 for the um, uh, ice cream social out in the uh, Family Life Center. If you are planning to churn ice cream, would you please let Chris Harris or Judy Harris or our church office know so we can uh, be prepared for that to, to have you there uh, set up there. This will uh, actually be the kickoff for the fall semester of Sunday night programs, which will begin a week later on the 28th. The Sunday night programs for children, which consist of mission kids, Bible study, and choir, will begin on the 28th at 5.30 and run till 7 at night. Adult Bible studies resume also that night, the 28th. And you can preview all the information about the Bible studies at the Ice Cream Social or by talking with Katie. And we remind parents of rising third graders to make sure that Katie has your rising third graders name on the list to receive a Bible during Promotion Sunday on the 28th. Uh, children will stay in their current Sunday school classes until after Promotion Sunday. Methodist men will be meeting Tuesday night, 6.15 at Southern Times, downtown Greer. And uh, we remind the members of the administrative board about several announcements you should have gotten during the week uh, to let you know that there is uh, another charge conference on Thursday night at 7 o'clock in the social hall. And the reason for this is that we had the incorrect um, figure on the resolution we passed last month as we were working to refinance our long-term debt. Um, the, the Reliance Trust Company didn't give us exactly the right number, and so that made our earlier resolution uh, unacceptable, so we need to repeat that on Thursday night at 7 o'clock. Speaking of things happening this week, um, on Tuesday night, uh, about 100 United Methodist pastors and their spouses will uh, descend upon us in the Family Life Center for our annual setup meeting. Um, District Superintendent, not knowing what he was asking, asked me to host that this year. Uh, I'm so good at making plans like that, I knew exactly what to do. I picked up the phone and called Katie and said, Katie, this isn't your job, but will you please help me? And so she's done all that, and I really appreciate it because that was not, that is not her job, but then again, it wasn't mine either. But anyway, that's Tuesday night. We uh, look forward to being the host uh, for that district gathering. Other announcements are in your bulletin that I hope you will read as you have the opportunity uh, to catch up on all the news. And we will at this time begin our time together in worship.
As we remain standing, let us affirm our faith in God using the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and stood at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From hence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Be seated, please. This time we invite the children to come forward to join Elaine Rush and or Katie Jeter for a few moments of sharing. morning. Did you see my back to school table as you walked in this morning? If you came in the back, I had a little back to school table set up because what happens this week? Right, you go back to school. So actually in place of our normal children's room this morning, we were going to have a back to school blessing to remind you that your church family is thinking about you and praying for you as you go back to school because sometimes it can be kind of a nervous and exciting time, right? So this back to school blessing is actually for anyone going back to school. So if there are older students out in the congregation or teachers or administrators, you're welcome to stand. Or if you want to remain seated, that's fine as well. But we're just going to have a back to school blessing. And then you're welcome to take one of these pencils if you didn't already get one. And there's some other things on the table you can take before you leave today, okay? So join me and we're going to pray together our back to school blessing. Father, we give you thanks for all you have given us. We thank you for creating us and filling us with good things, for giving us your son, Jesus, to show us the way to you. Bless these students, teachers, and support staff as they begin this new school year. Help them in all they do to appreciate the goodness in themselves and to look for the good in those around them. Help them live their faith and love for you by loving those around them. Help them to see your presence always. May they turn to you in good times and in bad and know that you are their strength. As they grow on the outside, may they grow on the inside too in knowledge and in love for you and others. Let your Holy Spirit give them the gifts of wisdom, understanding, and knowledge to help them learn the things you need them to know. Bless all children, students, teachers, and support staff this day, O oh God. Give them inquiring minds and discerning hearts. Give them courage to, to persevere in all they undertake. Give them laughter and love to share with all. Give them protection and safety as they move out of our embrace and give them sure and certain knowledge of your unfailing love. 
May my prayer be a blessing to everyone who it is prayed over today. And may it be a reminder for us all to keep these back-to-schoolers in our thoughts and prayers this week and throughout this school year. We ask all this through Jesus Christ. Amen. Anyone in the audience is welcome to a pencil as well. The Old Testament lesson is Genesis 45, verses 1 through 15. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers, and he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph, is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been famine in the land, and for the next five years, there will not be plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by the great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, Lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me. You, your children and grandchildren, your flocks and herds and all you have, I will provide for you there because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. You can see for yourselves, and so can my brother Benjamin, that it really is I who am speaking to you. Tell my father about all the honor accorded to me in Egypt and about everything you have seen, and bring my father down here quickly. Then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept, and Benjamin embraced him weeping, and he kissed all of his brothers and wept over them. Afterward, his brothers talked with him. Here ends the lesson. Our responsive reading 
is Psalm 133, which is um, recorded on page 850 in your uh, hymnal. I invite you to stand as you're able as we share God's word responsively. Behold how good and pleasant it is when we live together in unity. It is like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion. passage, I believe, in Romans 11, reading verses 1 through 2a, and then 29 to 32, which makes a one thought, really. I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin, God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy on you. For God has bound all people over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Here ends the lesson.
Let us join our hearts together for a time of prayer. Indeed, Lord, your ways are not our ways, and you are constantly surprising us and working in ways that we wouldn't anticipate. You even used an act in the Old Testament of treachery and of rebellion to sell a brother into slavery, and you turned that into an opportunity to rescue those same brothers from starvation and rescue all their family members as well. And the most amazing thing, Lord, is you enabled Joseph to see your plan and to accept what was happening to him as part of your good plan for his life. Your ways are amazing. You chose your people and you used your chosen people to reveal the Ten Commandments and your wonderful ways and you used the prophets that you sent to those people to instruct us all in the way that we should live. And yet, you used a mistake on their part to bless the whole world. Because through the unwillingness of people to accept Jesus as their Messiah, the world was opened up to receive Jesus as the Christ. And we who are of Gentile background were blessed to be brought into your kingdom and be a part of your new covenant people. Who would have possibly foreseen how you can do things like that and use things that appear to be negatives for our good. But as your servant Paul said, you are always at work in all things for the good of those who love you. And we rejoice in that hopeful good news that you are at work to bring good our way all the time, even out of the difficulties that fall upon us. We're thankful for that. And we are filled with joy and with praise to you for the wonders of your works in our lives. And so we have confidence and trust that even in these difficult days that our nation is going through economically, there is a blessing waiting upon us for you have promised to bring blessings to us as we trust in you. And in all the troubled spots of the world, you are at work to bring peace and freedom and wholeness to all of your children. Remind us of this when the news is the darkest and when our faith begins to grow dimmer, that you are a God who works in all things, your will to perform. Lord, we remember again those children that are leaving to go to school this week and for especially our college students who are leaving home to go back to college. 
And for those who are teaching and administering, uh, helping them to grow, we pray your blessings upon them all because we know your hopes and dreams for your children largely rest upon these who are learning in these days. We pray in the name of Jesus who has taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. This time let us worship God by giving.
passage of scripture that sort of made me think about that song last week is uh, recorded in Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 through 28. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Yes, Lord, she said, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. Here ends the lesson. The text in Romans is the background for the sermon today. And um, we'll be looking at some of Paul's words about the irrevocable trust. Several years ago in another congregation, I had a lawyer friend who tried to educate me as to the various ways I could set up my very large estate in ways that would protect Penny and the children from any unscrupulous second husband, stepfather, should something happen to me. Uh, that husband, stepfather who might want to try to con them out of the vast possessions which I had amassed to that point as a United Methodist pastor. One of the ways was a possibility known as a revocable living trust which gave me continued control over my vast resources so that I could make any future adjustments that I wanted to. The other option Penny really liked, it was called an irrevocable living trust because it turned over all of my possessions to her control, giving her permanent uh, control from that day on. She really liked that idea until she inventoried our vast possessions and decided that it wasn't very much to uh, worry about that after lunch they'd be half of what they were before lunch. Uh, probate judge wouldn't be too concerned either way. So uh, those ideas of uh, revocable and irrevocable trusts um, were put into my vocabulary at that time and I thought about that again when I read Paul's words in Romans regarding God's call to us and upon Israel especially. Paul's thorough expression of his theology in the book of Romans would not have been complete without his wrestling with one of the first century mysteries. How could it have possibly been that God's chosen people, the Israelites, would fail to recognize their Messiah when he came among them? You know, God had led Abraham from Ur in Mesopotamia to the land of promise and he had fulfilled the promise to make Abraham, Abraham's descendants as numerous as the stars in the sand. When Jacob, Israel, and his 12 sons and their families went to Egypt 
for refuge in a time of famine, God still caused their numbers to grow greatly. When they became oppressed and persecuted, God sent Moses to save them, to lead them out of slavery through the sea and the desert, right to the very doorway of the promised land where Joshua got to finish the conquest. Several centuries later, under David's leadership, Israel became a great nation. And God promised after that, that after the people had once again strayed away from God and had become a captive nation, that God would send someone to them like Moses or David to save them once again. But this time, this servant would be very special and very different. He would be Emmanuel, God with us. God had done that very thing in Jesus of Nazareth, but the chosen people had not recognized the Messiah in the day of his visitation. Even Saul of Tarsus, one of the most religious and most well-educated Israelites of his day, had at first failed to recognize the Messiah. Without the miraculous intervention of God on the road to Damascus that Paul considered was on a par with the Easter resurrection appearances to the 11 disciples, without that, Paul would have probably never come to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. It is clear in his words to the Romans that Paul is in a lot of pain by the fact that Israel as a nation had not responded to Jesus when he came as the Messiah. Now, this fact has been used by Christians and non-Christians throughout many centuries in some very, very unchristian ways. Christian kings have used the rejection of Jesus as an excuse to persecute Jews within their kingdoms. The Jews have been blamed for everything that has gone wrong on the planet, it seems. Hitler used this as an excuse to carry out what has since been uh, called the Holocaust. And here in the South, the Ku Klux Klan used this as a reason to burn crosses in the yards of Jewish Americans as well as African Americans. One of the ways that you and I can avoid that kind of attitude of anti-Semitism is to listen carefully to what Paul says in Romans 11. And hear clearly when Paul says, God has not rejected his people. They still are his chosen people. And he has not and he will not revoke their calling. Look at Paul's words. Just because they did not receive Jesus as their Christ, does that mean that now God has reacted in the same way and has rejected his people? Are they no longer God's chosen? Has God revoked their calling? Absolutely not, insists Paul. How could anyone even suggest this, Paul wondered. Paul offered several things as proof of this fact that that wasn't true. First of all, Paul... And most of the Christians of the first century were, in fact, Hebrews. How then could it possibly be true that God had turned against his chosen people when so many of them had, in fact, 
accepted Jesus as the Christ. People often forget that it was the Romans and their governor, Pontius Pilate, who are guilty of executing Jesus. And that only a handful of Jewish religious and civic leaders cooperated with the Romans to accomplish this fact. The vast majority of the laity of Israel appreciated Jesus' ministry and loved him. Those devastated Israelites lined the Via Dolorosa and wept as Jesus passed by carrying his cross. But all of the first century Christians were Jews. Uh, All the first ones, that is. And although their leaders never embraced Jesus as the Messiah, many of them did. And in every age since then, there have been many people from every ethnic background, including the children of Israel, who have come to accept Jesus as the Messiah. Since this is true, Paul would say, God could not possibly have rejected his children, not Jews or Arabs or Chinese or even slave-trading Englishmen. For this reason, you and I must always be as loving and as winsome as we can to all people everywhere. We just never can tell when our love will result in someone's salvation through faith in Christ. Some of you got to know a man who was also a friend of mine named Reverend Enoch Finkley. Reverend Finkley never served a big congregation in South Carolina. At his retirement, he, had, he was serving four little churches around Pelion, South Carolina. Anybody know where Pelion is? And he'd been there for like 25 years. But Enoch probably spoke to more Methodist people in more churches in South Carolina than any pastor I've ever run across in my time of ministry. Often accompanying Enoch as he traveled to those churches was a man that Enoch introduced as his associate pastor. That man was a Jewish jeweler from West Columbia. That sounds a little bit like typecasting almost, a Jewish jeweler. But this Jewish jeweler never abandoned his faith as far as I know. But he loved to travel with Enoch, to hear Enoch speak about the love of God to his Old Testament and New Testament people, and especially the good news about salvation through faith in Christ. As long as things like that are happening, Paul would argue, that is proof that God has not rejected his chosen race. Second reason Paul cites is the fact that God never breaks his promises. Not even when you and I break our promises. We may forget God, but God never forgets us. God doesn't ever rescind his call either. We United Methodists may have a problem, a free will problem with the once saved, always saved doctrine, but it is very clear in the Bible that with God, once you're called, you're always called. Moses ran away from God when God called him to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt, but God didn't take away the calling. No matter how much Moses protested, I can't speak in public, I, I, I stutter. I'm too weak and scared. God never backed down on the call. In the Old Testament, Jonah 
ran away from God. And yet, the first thing God said to this prophet after he had fed the big fish some syrup of epicac, I guess, and the uh, poor Jonah had been barfed up on the uh, beach, God said, Jonah, like I said to you the other day, go to that great city of Nineveh and tell the people to repent. Jonah's disobedience did not change God's call. The universal church of Jesus Christ has not always believed or behaved correctly. In the Middle Ages, we taught people that they could buy forgiveness from God if they had enough money. We turned a deaf ear a little later on to those who called us in this country to abandon the practice of slavery. But God didn't give up on us. Our Christian sons even died in an, an unbelievably high numbers, defending our right to own slaves. But God never said to his church, I reject you and rescind your call. God's reaction was, I will perfect you and call you again. God has not revoked his call to us or to the Israelites. Then Paul who had already told the Romans that God works mysteriously and wonderfully in all things for the good of those who love him, now finds in the failure of God's people Israel to universally accept Jesus a marvelous and mysterious God at work who managed somehow to use that failure as a wonderful strength so that the gospel could go to the whole world. God, you see, had plan to give Jesus for the whole world. Jesus was meant to be everyone's Messiah. Who would have thought that the failure of the chosen people to receive their Savior would be the open door that God would choose to use to take the good news to us Gentiles everywhere around the world? Paul stopped just short of blaming God for the failure of his people to recognize Jesus as if God had purposely blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. But he did give God thanks for using the temporary blindness of his chosen people as an open door through which to bring Gentiles into faith. In a very similar fashion, I hope it's true, that we don't blame God when bad things befall us, but we thank him that he can even use those bad things as sources of blessing to us. Finally, Paul seems to, to, to believe that God can even use our negative basest instincts for his glory. Things like envy and jealousy. Paul spoke of trying to live in such a way that made his enemies jealous because that jealousy may, might make them want to follow Jesus. In the last verse that we read today, Paul says that just as the Gentiles had felt like outcast, and this had made them desire salvation. So now Paul hoped that by their feeling of being left out, the chosen people might also come to a place where they desired to be on the inside of God's grace. It is a truth that people, like the prodigal son, who waste their lives and their reputations by means of reckless living, those are the ones who can understand salvation and grace more easily than these elder brothers among us who never do anything wrong. We don't understand grace unless we've fallen.
The prodigal father's greatest hope for that self-righteous elder brother was that somehow his grace would be, could be conveyed to that self-righteous young man. Maybe even if that young man would do something wrong even to where he would understand God's love and grace and forgiveness, it would be okay. Just so he came to understand that too. If being on the outside looking in had led the Gentiles to believe, then maybe now God's chosen people who were on the outside looking in might also come to embrace Jesus as the Messiah. It is a fact, says Paul, that God has imprisoned all people in a precarious position, binding Jews and Gentiles alike over to disobedience so that all people will find themselves in need of God's grace. Then God will have mercy upon us all. Listen again to verse 32. For God has bound all people over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. When I read that this week, I was reminded of a popular folk song from back in the 1960s. Uh, when Dennis Lee and I were young people uh, in high school. Uh, there was a song written by Leonard Cohen and performed by many singers. Neil Diamond was my favorite, I think, that sang this song. It's called Suzanne. And I never really understood the meaning of that entire song, but the second verse seemed to echo Paul's idea that we've all been given over to disobedience so that we might understand God's mercy. Listen to the words of that second verse. Jesus was a sailor when he walked upon the water. And he spent a long time watching from his lonely wooden tower. And when he knew for certain only drowning men could see him, he said, all men will be sailors then until the sea shall free them. All of us live our lives upon the sea of disobedience where we learn our need for salvation. And when we come to see Jesus as the grace giver and savior, then the sea of troubles that we've been living upon will have served God's purpose well and the sea will give us freedom from sin through our faith in Jesus Christ. God has given you and me and the church and Israel, an irrevocable calling, a calling to be God's people. And that calling will never be rescinded or taken back because God is not one who ever gives up on his people. Once called, always called. God is indeed the hound of heaven as proclaimed by Francis Thompson in his poem. God's grace is rare and relentless as contemporary gospel writer Derek Webb sings, God has always used his Old Testament chosen people and will do so in the future. Until that day comes when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen.